Well, good morning. We want to welcome all of our campuses, uh, every one of you, and uh, we are thankful to be privileged to be live from Ross Traver this morning. Uh, yeah, Ross Traver Group's excited about that. And I know all of our campuses are excited about Ross Traver. You know, we have prayed for years uh, to have a church in the Mon Valley, a campus in the Mon Valley, and the way God orchestrated all this, we're very thankful for that and certainly thankful uh, to have Nathaniel and Summer Stevens uh, with us and doing a fantastic job out here, and it's just uh, great to see what God's doing, yeah. So let's pray together, and then we'll open God's Word. Father, we thank you that you are God who loves us, and you care for us, and you know us intimately, as we'll see today. There's nothing we can hide from you. There, there's nothing, uh, there's nowhere we can run from you. Wherever we go, you're already there. And so, Father, we pray that as we look at your word today, that you would help us understand who you are and how you always invite us to yourself, even when we stray, even when we run away. I pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts, speak to our mind, and help us to understand uh, your word open our ears so that we can hear what you want us to say. Open our hearts, Lord, even those hard places that, uh, that we don't like to be vulnerable about, we don't like to open up. I pray, Lord, that you would, you would speak to that place and that you would break away the hardness. Lord, do your work in us today. And Father, as we come uh, through technology with... Uh, uh, one church meeting together uh, in, in different parts of Pittsburgh. Uh, we come, Lord, and this is what we can do together. We can pray together as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. So we're in this series we've titled Unselfie, We, Not Me. And uh, what's cool is, in conjunction with this series, they are opening up a selfie museum in Hollywood, California. Did you know that? Just, just for this series. It's amazing. Nathaniel uh, Stevens emailed me uh, this to me just yesterday, and he said, this might work in the series, and uh, I'm using it right now. This is the Museum of Selfies. Let me just read, uh, read a little bit about it. Museum of Selfies is going to Hollywood. We're opening a permanent location in the heart of Hollywood. Come indulge your inner selfie seeker at our new home filled with interactive exhibits, uh, uh, special photo uh, opportunities, and explore the unique hidden history of cultural impact of the selfie. Now, the grand opening is October the 12th. So you need to make your plans now to get to Hollywood. $25 a ticket for adults and $20 uh, for kids. And uh, you can go and you can be a part of it. They, they say, get, we guarantee it is a party you will not want to miss. And you'll see something like this uh, when you go there, David, Statue of David, uh, taking a selfie. So pretty interactive there. Okay, unselfie, we, not 
me. What we're trying to do in this series is very simple. We're trying to, we're trying to deal with our self-focus, and we're all self-focus. We're all pretty good at the, at the selfie thing. The definition of a selfie, by the way, is this, an image of oneself taken by oneself. And we're pretty good at that. The image we have of ourselves taken by ourselves. And so let's deal with self-absorption. Let's deal with self-focus. And if we could say it this way, the purpose of this series is to just to get over ourselves in order to get beyond ourselves, to have that life that God always has wanted us to live. And so we'll be looking at the series like this. We were looking at our relationship first with God. And we want that relationship to be what? We want it to be deeper. We don't want to be the same place next year as we are right now. We want to grow in that relationship. Wherever you are in your relationship with God, we want to grow deeper in that. That's the first thing. That's the most important we, our relationship with God. Then when, we, when we're working on that and when we're growing in that, then we can deal with our relationship to others. And is that line on the screen? Because it's not here either. And when you have that relationship with others, we want that relationship to be richer. We want relationships with other people that's not just on the surface. We, we don't want like uh, uh, a bunch of Facebook friends that just see who we are based on what we post. We want to be those people who have friends who will look us in the eye and say what? You know what? I love you too much to allow you to continue to act like that. I love you too much to allow you to continue to talk like that. I, I love you so much. I want to encourage you on this walk with Jesus Christ. And so we have the vertical relationship with God. That's where it starts. That's the most important. And then we have the horizontal relationship with each other. So, so far in this series, we've seen that in eternity past, God created the heavens and the earth, and we looked at the Trinity. God exists in community. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And as God exists in this original community, He makes man in His own image. We are made in the image of God. And so it shouldn't be surprising to us that when God makes us in His own image, then we desire and need community as well. So one of the first things God tells Adam is what? It's not good for you to be what? Alone. And it's not just uh, Eve that I'm creating you for, but, but uh, the, the family and, and the church community and the community from there. It's not good for the man to be alone. Genesis 1 and 2, we see that. And God places man in this beautiful, perfect environment. And then Genesis 3, sin enters and it changes everything. It infects us from the inside out. And now we were, we were vulnerable, naked, and not ashamed, Genesis 2.25. And now we cover ourselves. We cover our sin. We want to hide from each other, and we want to hide from God. So I'm going to try this tablet again. Let's think of it like this. If this is man and God in this perfect relationship, right? Genesis chapter 1 and 2, perfect relationship, uh, interacting together in, in, in an intimate way. Then comes Genesis 3, and you have 
the fall. Sin separates us from God. Penalty of sin is death. And we live that way, separated from God. On our own, we cannot have a relationship with God. We can't work our way to God. We can't be good enough for God. can't do enough things that God would finally say, okay, now you're ready for me to accept you. But God loved us so much, so what did he do? He sent Jesus to die for our sins. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. And so here we have the cross. Jesus came. And he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Now, when we trust in Jesus Christ alone as the only way to have a relationship with God, nothing, absolutely nothing, can ever sever that relationship. We are a child of God, and we will forever be a child of God. Laura and I have four children. They are our children. They might, uh, they might move away. There might be a time that when they may say, you know what, we don't even want to see you anymore. That would break our hearts, but would they still be our children? Absolutely. And when we move from God, we might break his heart. There's uh, communions interrupted, but we're still his child and will forever be. And so when we become a Christian, you guys have seen this many times before, we start this journey, right? Kind of up and down, up and down, all the way until we get to heaven and now that relationship with God is restored again. So what we want to do today and next time as well is we want to talk about this part of the journey right here. We're going to be talking as believers, how do we grow in that journey? As believers, how do we make sure we're moving forward? This, if you're a non-believer, this should be very attractive to you. But if you're a believer, this is critical that we understand what it looks like to continue that journey with God. And particularly in these next two weeks, we're going to look at what happens when we hit these areas here. When we fail and when we fall. And that's really the question. What happens when a Christian sins? What happens when a Christian falls? What happens when a Christian falls hard? We know that we're a child of God and will forever be. Uh, on Friday, I got a call from a longtime member uh, of our church, uh, Liz Esway. Uh, Liz and Herm were, were two of the first people that Lori and I met when we, when we candidated uh, here in Pittsburgh back in uh, 1989. And uh, Liz uh, worked uh, with me in the office, and we partnered in ministry, and she led to women's ministry and discipleship ministry and counseling ministry, and Herm was right along with her one of our deacons for a long, long time. It served at the church in many ways. And, and, and so Liz uh, called me on, on Friday and just left a message on my phone. I wasn't able to answer it when she called. She just said, it's only you to know, Herm is absent from the body. And what? He's present with the Lord. That's all she said. He's absent from the body. He's present with the Lord. We're going to have a, a memorial service for Herm on Monday at the South Hills campus. I know many of you at all of our campuses know the S-Ways. And uh, it's from 4 to 6, the visitation, and then 6, the service, and we'll have a dinner afterwards. But that's what it's about in the Christian life, isn't it? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. But until then, how do we live this life that honors God, that attracts others to God, that lives this, this life that, that goes beyond ourselves, so we can have all that God has for us? And what happens when we fall? What happens, what happens when, when sin interrupts our communion with God? 
You know, I think of sin in a couple of ways. Um, sometimes, think of a storm, right? Uh, sometimes sin is like a light, it's like a thunderstorm. Just clasps of thunder, loud. It's blatant sin. We know it. It's downpouring. We know it. Blatant sin. Other times, kind of like a steady shower. It's not thunderstorm, but we just keep walking away from God. Nothing big. Just keep walking away from God. Both of those need to be dealt with. And we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about a prayer of confession. In the Psalms, uh, there are several prayers of confession. They're called penitent Psalms. Let, I don't have these in your notes, but let me just let me give these to you. Psalm 6 is one of them. Uh, Psalm 25, 32 is a great one. David talks about the guilt of his sin. Uh, Psalm 38, 39, and 40 are all penitent Psalms, Psalm, uh, prayers of confession. Psalm 102, and 130, the same. We're going to focus on Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And when you turn to Psalm 51, you'll see right at the top of the psalm, there is some words, a sentence or two, that they don't have any verses. It doesn't have any verses by it. That's called a superscript. In the Hebrew, it's actually verse 1 and verse 2, and the psalm starts with verse 3, but in the English, it's just called a superscript. And there are many psalms that have superscripts, and, and they will just tell you sometimes what the psalm is about. And this one, interestingly, says this, to the choir master, so at some point they set it to music, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So we've got to stop there, and let's just set the context. Second king of Israel is David, a man after God's own heart. Man, David wasn't perfect. We'll see that today. But his heart beat with God. There was a tenderness there. And we always seeing David, even when he sinned, he went back to God. There was a tenderness of confession. David's second king of Israel, and it's interesting that in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, it says in, or 11 rather, chapter 11, verse 1, the, it, was, it was a time of the year, it was the spring of the year when the kings went out to war. And it's kind of kind of interesting to think that during the winter, they, they took a break. Uh, they didn't fight during the winter. It's cold, uh, snow's coming down, and uh, so they let the snow come down. They, they, they kind of regroup, they rest, uh, they train, they get ready. And then uh, when, the, when the snow melts, and when the mud's gone, and when the earth starts to firm up, it's spring, and so the kings go back out to war. And so David says, time to go, and he sent Joab, his commander, to the Ammonites to do battle with the Ammonites. But there's this telling part of the end of verse 1, but David stayed in Jerusalem. What God say in Genesis chapter 2? It's not good for the man to be what? alone. And it certainly wasn't good for David to be alone. It's always a dangerous place. His men, those guys who knew him, those guys who, his, 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 uh, his mighty men, 30 guys who were always with him, inner three who were with David all the time, they were gone. He was by himself and late one afternoon, took a walk on his roof. He looked down. He saw a beautiful woman. He, she was bathing. He sent messengers to check on her. He learned at least three things. He learned one, that her name was Bathsheba. He learned that she was married. And he learned that her husband was named Uriah. And that's important because Uriah was one of David's mighty men, one of his most loyal servants, a fierce warrior. 
and Uriah was on the battlefield fighting David's war while David is looking at his wife. You know the story. David called her up. They were intimate. She became pregnant. And then in order to try to hide his sin, remember the pattern of sin we looked at last week? He saw, he wanted, he took, and then he hid. In order to hide the sin, he called Uriah in from the battlefield. And he said, Uriah, man, great to see you. You know, you've been on a, you've been on a battlefield for a while. Be nice just to go be with your wife, wouldn't it? Thinking that their intimacy then would, people would think the baby was produced by them. But Uriah said, you know what, David, King David, I, I can't be with my wife. My men, my brothers in battle, they're sleeping on the ground. How, how, how could I even think about? Boy, that had to hit David pretty hard, didn't it? How could I even think about being with my wife? So, you know what David did? He got Uriah drunk, thinking that he would go in an inebriated state to be with his wife. Uriah didn't do it. What David did next was unthinkable. He takes out a pen, and he writes to his commander, Joab. Joab, here's what I want you to do. Don't ask any questions. I want you to put Uriah where the battle is the fiercest. Put him up front. Don't ask any questions, Joab. Then, when the battle is at the peak of its intensity, I want you to withdraw the other men away from him. I want to make sure Uriah is dead. Don't ask any questions, Joab. And he signs it, King David. He folds it. He puts a seal of wax on it. And just think about this. He gives that letter to who? Uriah. You believe it? He gives it to Uriah. And says, Uriah, take this and give it to Joab. Uriah takes his, his death warrant right to Joab. And sure enough, Uriah is dead. So the problem solved, right? David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And people said, David's so kind. One of his mighty men, his, his wife, she's pregnant. David brought her in. Brought her in to be part of his, his home, his palace. The, the kind king he is. Until people started putting two and two together. <laughs> and then the months didn't add up. And they realized what David had done. David, David lived that way for at least nine months. At least nine months. The baby's born. And you know, David's probably not thinking a lot about his sin at this time. He's probably thinking, you yeah, know, that's a bad thing to do. But, you know, about a year's gone by, so I think pretty good. But then one day... God sent the prophet Nathan to talk to David. I want to read this story. This is a fascinating story. Man, there's so many things here. First, think about Nathan. Nathan's going to go confront David. Think about, he's got to be a little nervous. Wouldn't you be a little nervous? You're going to go confront the king about his sin? I know when I talk to people about an uncomfortable situation, I get pretty nervous. 
pretty nauseated sometimes. Nathan's going to go talk to David about his sin. Now, Nathan, he kind of pushed things aside to that point, but God said, no, Nathan, you got to go. Saying, David, you sinned. He tells a story, and he reels David's emotions in. I want to read the story. Chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord said, Nathan, to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor, and the rich man had very many flocks and herds. So here's a guy, he's got all kinds of flocks and sheep and goats and herds, but the poor man, he had nothing but this little ewe lamb, which he had bought, he bought it himself, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him, it was growing up with him in his house, and it was with his children, and it used to eat of his morsels. This little lamb it was always around the house and it ate out of his plate and, and it drank from his cup and he would hold it in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. Remember that guy with all the flocks and herds? And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock and herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, a little lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come. Look at verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did such a thing and because he had no pity. And then look what Nathan says in verse 7. Hey, David, you're the guy I'm talking about. You are the man. Just think about David's emotion. Think about his face. Think about his heart that fell. There's some consequences that go along with that. God says, now God's talking. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife and killed him. And, and, and look back at verse 8. I, I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that were too little... I would add to you as much more. David, if you just ask me, what are you going to go take Uriah's wife and then put Uriah to death? In verse 13, there's some consequences. We'll get to those later. Even forgiven sin has consequences. But in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. Right after that, Nathan left. It says Nathan uh, went to his own house. And it may have been right after Nathan left that David uh, wrote what we now know as Psalm 51. Asking forgiveness from God. Now before we get there, I, I, I want uh, us to understand, first of all, what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about a prayer of repentance. And there are three important parts to repentance, true repentance, three important parts. There's conviction, there's confession, and there's change. Let's think about those. First, there is conviction. If you're a believer, we're talking about believers. The Holy Spirit says you stepped over the line. You sinned against God. And there is a, some remorse uh, in, 
in Psalm 32, David calls it the guilt of my sin. Uh, sometimes we call it conviction, but there's a heaviness. We've all experienced, I know I have, right? There's a heaviness on our heart. That's where conviction is. Now, the important thing is this. In Scripture, there are two kinds of conviction. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is writing to believers in Corinth, and he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. So I wrote some things that were hard for you to hear. He says, I don't regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little bit. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved. I'm not rejoicing because you had remorse or conviction, but I'm rejoicing because you were grieved into what? Repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Then verse 10, that's the key verse, mark that one. For godly grief or godly sorrow, some translations, produce a repentance that leads to salvation. Now, that's talking, not talking about our coming to Christ. He's writing to Christians. It's talking about our getting right back with God after our sin. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So let's think about that. There are two types of conviction. There is worldly sorrow, and there is godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is this. I'm really sorry I got caught. I'm embarrassed. My reputation's kind of damaged. My marriage, if it was that type of a sin, I didn't do it any good. And I got some guilt here. And I'm really sorry I got caught. But worldly sorrow, it just doesn't last long. The guilt wears off. And then you're on your, your merry way to continue on. And, and, and if you just go with worldly sorrow, you know what? You just work harder at not getting caught. Anytime I confront someone who has sinned, the first question I ask is this. Are you sorry you offended God? Are you sorry you sinned against God? Or are you sorry you got caught? Too important. That's an important question. And until we understand godly sorrow, we're going to see in the psalm that we sin against God. We offend the holy God. We offend our Father, our Heavenly Father, who loved us so much that He sent Jesus to die for us. And godly sorrow comes with no excuses. I'm not going to blame anyone else. It's no one else's fault. In Psalm 51, we'll see David calls this a broken and contrite spirit. God, that's what you're after. Not blaming anyone else. Godly sorrow chain causes us to get things right with God, regardless of the consequences. And again, we'll see in Psalm 51, even forgiven sin has consequences. So you have conviction, then confession. I'm sorry I did this. I shouldn't have done this. But here's the key. Change. Conviction, confession, and change. So let me try to illustrate it like this. Uh, I'll suppose I got in, in my garage and I go to my little wall, my workbench, and I get a claw hammer. And I take it back in the house, and I, I go into our, uh, our living room, and I just start pounding holes in a wall, right? 
just pound holes in the wall. And Lori's going to come in and say, what in the world are you doing? So I got caught. And I say, eh, I shouldn't have done that. It was me, I confess, shouldn't have done that. But then I hold the hammer in my hand. And then the next day, I go, I go into our dining room. And I start pounding holes in the wall. And Lori says, what are you doing? And I say, oh, I got caught. Sorry, it was me. Shouldn't have done that. But I keep the hammer in my hand. What have I done? Conviction. Shouldn't have done it. I got to fix the holes. Conviction. Confession. But it didn't change. I held the hammer. It's only until I get rid of the hammer. It's only until I alter my life. So I am going to guard myself. It's not foolproof, but I'm going to guard myself against that sin again. That's like a guy looking at porn, right? Looks at pornography. And he says, oh, that's heavy. I shouldn't have done that. I feel really bad about that. God, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have done that. But then he kind of leaves things the same way on his computer and accountability because he says, you know what? I may want to do that again tomorrow. I may be tempted to do it tomorrow. I may want to do it tomorrow. True repentance always comes with change. I'm going to set some stuff up. I'm going to quit going somewhere. I'm going to quit hanging out with somebody. I'm going to set guards up on my computer or iPhone or whatever. I'm going to get accountability. I can't keep doing this. Conviction, confession, and change. All right. Psalm 51. That was a long introduction, wasn't it? Psalm 51. Uh, let's look at Psalm 51 and just work our way. We're only going to, I'm going to make uh, three points today, and um, we'll work our way through this, and uh, I'll make some points again next time. Simon, I don't have a clock, so how am I doing on time? All right, tell me when I'm, tell me when I'm done. All right, first point uh, to Psalm 51 is this. The path of forgiveness begins with an appeal to God's mercy. The path of forgiveness begins with an appeal for God's mercy. The first thing, the first words out of David's mouth are these. What? Look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. Grace, as you know, is God's free gift to us that we don't deserve. The gift we don't deserve. What's mercy? When God doesn't give to us what we do deserve. Now remember... David has coveted, he has stolen, he's committed adultery, he has murdered, he has, he has hidden, uh, he has lied. He's broken five of the Ten Commandments. What he did deserved death in that day. But David says, God, don't give me what I do deserve. Give me mercy. His heart's completely exposed to God, and he has one appeal. His only appeal, David's only prayer, that's, his own, that's the only prayer he has. David is left with one card in his hand. God's mercy. God, please give me your mercy. How about you? All of our campuses, you're hiding your sin. You're pretending like something never happened. The entrance to forgiveness begins with a plea of guilty. I am guilty. And I'm appealing to God's mercy. 
I only have the one card left. I can't fix this on my own. God, I need your mercy. Secondly, we see that this prayer for mercy is not like us kneeling before a, a despot or a tyrant asking the guy, please, begging for our life, don't cut off my head. Our plea for mercy is to our Heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us. And David's plea for mercy is based on the character of God. That's the second thing we see here. The path to forgiveness is paved by God's character. First, David says, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me according to, based on, God, now, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give your promises back to you, based on your steadfast love. The word steadfast love in the Hebrew is a beautiful Hebrew word, a rich Hebrew word called kesed. It's found 245 times in Scripture. A couple times ago, remember in Micah chapter 6, 8, we, we looked at this word kesed. Sometimes it's translated loyalty. Sometimes faithfulness. Here, steadfast love. Kesed is God's love of commitment. His love of commitment. Sometimes we call it his covenantal love. He makes a covenant with us as his child. That's kesed. And the writer of Hebrews just puts this beautifully in one passage, Hebrews 13, 6. He quotes two passages from the Old Testament. And I believe this is a great description for this word kesed. The writer says, For God has said, I will never leave, writing to believers, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Now you see the asterisk there? Unless you sin. Or unless you sin really bad. Or if you don't sin really bad. It's not there, is it? I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I am your heavenly father. You are my child. You're always going to be my child. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. That's from Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. And then the writer continues with this verse, quoting from Psalm 118.6, where he says... So we can, if, if we know God's going to be with us, he'll never leave us, never forsake us, and we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. God's with me. God's my helper. Remember, we looked at the word. Remember, uh, 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 God said, uh, I'm going to make a helper for Adam. That's the same word. The one who completes what someone is lacking. The one who is there to give strength where we are weak. God is our helper. He is our ultimate helper. I don't have to fear because he's with That's a beautiful description of Kesed, God's covenantal, his love of commitment. So our plea of mercy is made with confidence that God's going to hear and answer us. And here's a verse we all as believers need to know because we're going to use it a lot. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just. Will you read it with me? Let's read it together, all campuses. You ready? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us for all, all righteousness. Aren't you glad of that? As believers, we can come. 1 John 1, 9. And confess our sins. And we know that we're not presuming on God's grace because we have his promise if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So David says, God, 
have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, your kesed, your covenantal love. And then the next word is rich, according to your abundant mercy. Abundant mercy. I, I like better the NIV's translation, your great compassion. Or the NASB, the greatness of your compassion. Or even the New King's James, King James Version, your tender mercies. This is a rich word. In Hebrew, this word is rahamim, and it means compassion. The, the root word of rahamim is rahem, and you know what that word means in Hebrew? A mother's womb. The intimacy of God's love. I mean, can you think of any place more intimate from the conception of life where something is protected a little baby, a life protected and cared for and loved and nourished and developed a place of dependence, a place of intimacy. And every one of us, we've experienced that. We don't remember it, but we experienced that. And now we can experience that same warmth, that same intimacy, that same protection, that same nourishment spiritually in our relationship with God because he loves us with that deep of a love. So David says, God, have mercy on me according to your character because I know who you are. You're my father. According to your covenantal love and according to this intimate relationship that we have together. Okay, one more thing. The path of forgiveness is a heartfelt desire for a fresh start. Man, don't you, don't you like fresh starts? Fresh starts. At the beginning of every season, every team's a Super Bowl team. Even the Cleveland Browns are a Super Bowl team at the beginning of the season. At the beginning of a school year, for you students, it's a fresh start. Beginning of marriage, fresh start. And every day with God can be a fresh start. Because remember, his mercies, Lamentation says what? His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so David prays for three things. Let me read through them and then we'll just work through them. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Let's think through this. The first word, transgression, means act of rebellion. It, it, it means defying God by crossing the line that God has drawn. So God draws the line, and we cross over it. That is a transgression, defying God in act of rebellion. Now, you may be like David and dive over the line like he did, or you may just stick your toe over the line. It's still an act of rebellion. And David says... I know I've sinned. Later on, we'll see next time, my sin's always before me. I get it. I've sinned. Have mercy on me. Blot out my transgression. David is saying, here's a register. My sin's written on it. God, just blot it out. Take a, take a ink and just blot out that sin so it's not on the register anymore. Now, is that a presumptuous prayer for a believer? I mean, David, you sin greatly. Not when it comes from a sincere heart. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who what? 
blots our blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I'll remember your sins no more. The omniscient God who knows everything there is to know about everything there is to know says, I will choose to remember your sin no more. David says, secondly, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. The word he uses here, iniquity, means crookedness. It means the perversion of what is right. David said, I knew the law. I knew exactly what to do, but I twisted it. I distorted the law. I perverted what God told me. Wash me from my iniquity. This is not washing of the body. This is a washing of wool for the sheep. There's a whole process they went through. The guy that washed it was called a, a fuller. And he would wash the wool until it was white. Is that a presumptuous prayer, David, with all you've done? Well, Isaiah 1.18 says this, Come now, what? Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And if you were reading that and you knew the process of wool in the Old Testament, you would say as white as wool, just like snow. God takes our stain God takes the stuff we've done in our life and he can wash it away. White as snow. One more thing. David says, cleanse me from my sin. The word sin here just means to miss the mark. It's an archer shooting at a target. Here's the bullseye and the archer misses the bullseye. May have missed it by just a little bit. May have missed it by a lot. But he missed the mark. And so David's saying, man, I'm, I missed the mark. Cleanse me. The word here means like a, le- like a leopard is cleansed from his disease. Cleanse me from this, from this infection of sin that I've given into. Jeremiah chapter 33, 8 says, I will cleanse them from the guilt of their sin against me. I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. I will cleanse them from their guilt. I'm going to wrap this up with a story in just a second, but I want to say one thing. The beauty of Psalm 51 is that you cannot out-sin God's grace. He is there with his arms wide open for you to come home. Whatever you've done, you can never say, my sin is too great for God. And you can't say, i got to clean myself up so God will accept me. You can't clean yourself up. You come like the prodigal son from the from wallowing with the pigs, filthy, and the Father is there welcoming you with open arms. That's the beauty of Psalm 51. You know what the danger of Psalm 51 is? Some of you may be sitting there saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect. I've sinned, but at least not like David. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't stolen someone's wife or coveted. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't killed anyone. And I don't always tell the truth. I twisted a little bit, but... And I lied. So I'm good. I don't need to deal with that. No, that's not, that's not the way it works. Remember, sin is missing the mark. By a little or a lot. It doesn't matter. You missed the mark. So uh, how many of you follow college football? Okay, no one here. But in the other campuses. So uh, there were a lot of games yesterday. And if you, if you didn't follow the scores, I'm going to help you out. Uh, Oklahoma beat Baylor uh, 66 to 30-something, right? 
66, 30-something. And then there was a game last night, Penn State and Ohio State, right? Beat Penn State by one point. It's a great game. One point. One point. Now, as by their win-loss column from their defeat from Oklahoma, 66 to 30-something, a what? An L. They lost. And Penn State, unfortunately, has in their win-loss column a what? An L. They lost. At the end of the season, there's not going to be an asterisk there. They only lost by one point. It's going to just be a loss. That's how it is with sin. God's, God's perfection, God's standard is perfect. And when we miss it, we sin against him. So the beauty of Psalm 51 is you can't out God's grace. The danger of Psalm 51, just because there are a lot of things going on in David's life, doesn't mean we don't need to always deal with the sin in our own life. So Ernest Hemingway wrote this story, a little short story called uh, The Capital of the World. And uh, in it, he had, uh, he had uh, this uh, Spanish guy had a son named Paco. And Paco was uh, rebellious, and he was defiant, and he was irresponsible, and he was unwilling to follow his father's rules. And he just preferred to live any way he wanted to live. And so one night, they had this, this terrible argument Paco said some terrible things to his father. He ran into the other room. He packed his bags and slammed the door, and he went to live in Madrid, hoping he'd never see his father again. But his father still loved him, even regardless of his son's rebellion. He cared about him, and he wondered, is he okay? Is he in trouble? Is he hurt? What's he doing? So finally, he said, I can't take this anymore. And he went to Madrid, and he placed a a personal ad in the paper, El Liberal, and it simply read this. Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday, all is forgiven, Papa. Paco, Meet me at a Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. So on noon the next day, the dad went to the Hotel Montana and was astonished to see 800 young men, all named Paca, a common name, waiting there for forgiveness. It was God who initiated David's return, right? God finally said, David, that's enough. I'm going to send Nathan to confront you. It's time to come back home. And God may be initiating that with you today. We'll send it off.